Well, if you've got this billion-dollar idea that you think is so good, but you're not prepared to put something on the line, why on earth am I going to uh, be doing that? And there's this weird expectation that you can come along, have a great pitch deck, and all of a sudden someone's going to write you a check, and it doesn't work that way. Uh, welcome to the Ask Alika podcast, where we answer all your questions about business, marketing, and technology. Hello, everybody. Today, I talk to Derek Girard, entrepreneur, tech investor, pastor, and philanthropist. Derek is a man of many hats. Some of his noteworthy achievements include leading Change Corp, a large management consulting firm. After this, he co-founded and later sold a profitable tech startup called GreenSense. He co-founded Go Capital, a tech capital raising firm. He is the head of Innovation Bay, a networking platform for innovation and investment in the tech space. I've been to one of their events and they run it like Shark Tank, which is cool. He also is a church pastor, a full-time role in itself. He is the chairman of Meridian Global Foundation, a not-for-profit that donates to high-impact charities. He is a board member of my company, Alika. Hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So, Derek, welcome aboard. Thanks. And welcome, everyone, to Ask Alika episode number nine. Uh, Derek, you're a very accomplished person. You've done many things. Please tell us the story. You've been a business owner, you're a philanthropist, you're a pastor, you're probably 10 other things that I don't know of. <laughs> Please share your yeah, story. Sure. All right. Well, uh, I guess it depends how far you want me to go back, but I, um, I uh, was a Perth boy um, and studied at ECU, just did a business degree as a mature age student um, and then landed a first graduate role with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Mm. Um, so I studied business, but with an IT kind of flavor to that. And, um, so the job with PwC took me to the US for a bit of time. It was right around the dot com, back end of the dot com era. Uh, then, uh, spent some time in Melbourne and New Zealand. Uh, so that was really interesting as a, as a grad, uh, coding on projects. Um, we were getting, um, resourced out into startups. Uh, I don't think we called them startups back then, but that was, uh, that was the deal. And, uh, PwC would, I guess, take a small equity position for the work that we were doing. So that's, well, was really interesting. We might come back to just relative to the work I do now, just having that experience kind of 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, ended up, uh, then moving over to London for about three years and I worked for Barclays Bank. Mm. Um, which was again really interesting because the size of the projects you get to work on in London, um, a phenomenal, like a, a, a mid-sized project there is probably larger than any of the IT projects that were happening in Perth at the time. Wow. Um, that was right when a lot of the banks were going online. So I worked on mm. launching one of the first e-banking products for, for Barclays. Um, I actually at that point was doing more project management work. Yeah, right. And, um, Funny enough, Barclays were rolling out uh, Microsoft SharePoint globally, um, which was about 70,000 users. So I actually led the largest SharePoint uh, rollout in the world at that point in time, wow. uh, which was a pretty cool experience. Um, so having done our sort of three-year stint in London and been away from Perth for about five or six years, we decided to come back. Um, so I moved back to Perth uh, about 13 years ago now and I ended up getting involved in a um, boutique management consulting IT services business at the time called Change Corporation. Um, so I worked with them for about three years and actually led that business in the back end of that. And uh, again, really interesting experience um, in terms of a fast-growing business. We went from uh, it's about 20 staff when I took that on to about 100 staff over a three-year period right at the height of the mining boom. So um, lot, lots of great experience 
um, through that period. Um, eventually left Change Corp and um, that kind of coincided with me starting, starting to work as a pastor, um, which maybe we'll talk about a bit later on. Yeah. Um, and a couple of the guys that had worked for me at Change Corp had a, a business technology idea, which was really kind of saying, how do we um, apply our technology skills to something that we care about? And rather than building products and services for other people, we want to be able to wake up in the morning and get passionate about what we're doing. And for these guys, that was very much around the sustainability, climate change mm. um, industry, which was pretty big on the public agenda at the time. This is back in 2008. Uh, lots of talk about the carbon pollution reduction scheme and and things. So, long story short, we ended up um, setting up a business which uh, was called GreenSense, and it was looking at how we can um, use real time data on energy and water consumption to help reduce energy and reduce water and be more efficient in that space in commercial and industrial buildings. Yeah. So set up that business two thousand and eight. Um, we grew that, so two business founders, we um, business partners, we um, took a few rounds of private equity funding, we got some Commercialisation Australia grants from the federal government, mm. um, eventually got profitable, and that business then was eventually sold to a public company uh, called ERM Power. And uh, yeah, so it was a really good story for Perth, having a tech business that started, founded a product, commercialised, got profitable, and, and then exited. Um, and on the back end of that, I uh, set up the business I now run, which is called Go Capital. Um, and through Go Capital, basically, we're investing back into technology companies. It's it's typically growth capital, and uh, we're, we're looking to accelerate their growth and add some expertise at an executive level or board level if we can. And uh, so we've over the last three years looked at about three hundred deals. We've we've done about three deals, and uh, business is going really well. And Derek, you're also head of Innovation Bay. If you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, when I finished, uh, came out of GreenSense, um, realized actually there was this growing tech startup community in Perth and really wanted to find a way to give back um, and kind of think about how we can help from the experiences we'd had with GreenSense. And one of the things that struck me at the time is we go and spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs in the startup space and they were saying, hey, there's, there's no money in Perth, which hadn't been my experience. Uh, but then we had this growing investor network who were also saying, gee, there's not really good deal flow in Perth. So we just felt there was a bit of a gap between those parties. Yeah, well. um, and that really coincided with um, a guy in Gardner who actually founded Innovation Bay in Sydney about 12 years ago. Um, he was in Perth and we were just chatting and um, it only really ran in Sydney at that point. And so we said, hey, look, maybe there's an opportunity to bring it to Perth, which is what we did three years ago. So Innovation Bay, really what it's about is um, it's a networking series between technology entrepreneurs and angel investors. And we just run an event every month. We look at ways to bring those groups together through, mm. through various events. Um, every three months we do a pitch night where entrepreneurs get to come and um, they basically load in a 90-second video of their idea um, our investor members vote and the top three then get to come and pitch um, to a room full of investors, kind of Shark Tank style. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we've been doing that in Perth for a couple of years now. We've had about a million dollars worth of seed capital written, written yeah, into well. early stage businesses, which is, a, well. you know, I think, a, a reasonable contribution at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where that you know, sort of fits and I, in. And I've been to some of your events and I love it. I love the atmosphere and how people vote and things like that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. And we've had a, a, a community that's been built around that now over the last yeah. few years and um, some great sponsors on board helping yeah. us do that so you guys yeah. are known as like the shark tank of perth yeah yeah it's fun <laughs> it's, it's pretty it's pretty cool um now tell us a bit about some how do you juggle so many things like because you're 
pastor as well of a church of a church and you're also ambassador for meridian global yeah uh, i think you actually head that up so yeah, yeah t- how do you juggle all of it and tell us a bit about those roles yeah so uh well meridian global i guess is the other thing i put my time to um that's a foundation that was set up by some people about 10 years ago um really it's thinking about how do we um, build the story of um, philanthropy and and realizing that in a place like Perth we're more wealthier than we realize and so we just want to create a conversation of, of giving back um, our model uh, there is that we get a hundred people each year to put in a thousand dollars your thousand dollars allows you to nominate a charity of your choice uh, and then our board shortlist that and the top three charities come along and present mm. uh, their story I'm at a giving event at the end of the year so it's a kind of standard giving circle model um, and your thousand dollars allows you to vote for the charity of your choice, and wow. basically the winning charity takes Shark away. Shark Tank style, yeah, almost Shark again. Tank charity, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, love the pitch events. Um, <laughs> yeah, so winning charity takes twenty five thousand. Second place gets fifteen. Wow, third gets cool. ten. So that's fifty. The other fifty we actually put into an investment fund, and the idea over time is that we'll mm. um, grow. That we'd love to grow that fund to a size where we can give away a million dollars a year. Um, and the charities can reapply for that money, so it's very much a sustainable model. Wow, so, cool. yeah, anyway, so that's Meridian. But I guess um, in terms of balancing those things, uh, I've pretty much been what I would call bivocational for about 10 years now. And partly the way I've done that is just by splitting my time. I'm pretty structured with that. So GoCap and Innovation Bay and the business ventures, I typically focus on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um the church things I do yeah. are typically Thursday and Sunday. Um, so part of it's just managing your time. I think um, what I found is that each each venture kind of fuels the other. So for me, if I was just doing business and just focusing on commercial things all the time, it's not necessarily that. Not a, ri- not a rich kind of life for you to just yeah. do the one. Yeah, one that's thing. right. But So then the, the church aspect allows me to think more about people and um, – and kind of broader yeah. things about life. Yeah. Um, but then each one kind of, you know, if I was just doing that, I think, you know, go a bit stir crazy yeah. as well. So yeah, each one kind of fuels the other, which is which has been good. Oh, I, I kind of subscribed to something a while ago, which I actually read out of a Harvard Business Review article, which says you don't really need to, everyone has the same amount of time. So time management can be a focus, but really the focus should be about energy management. Yeah, and yeah. this article talked about, um, stopping and thinking about you, you kind of have four fuel tanks, which is your your emotions, um, your your mental tank, your physical tank, and your spiritual tank. And if you can realize that if any one of those tanks is not full, it's going to impact your energy levels. And so the way this article focused was talking about thinking about what drains your tank and what fills your tank. Yeah. And I actually found that quite revolutionary really in terms of how I manage time because even though I do many things, at the end of the day, it's all life. It's all bundled in together and you can't choose when you have to yeah. um, kind of delve into one or the other depending on what's going on. But if you, you can keep your energy levels high based on knowing what fills and what drains those tanks, so I'm pretty intentional about how I kind of work through that. I love that fill tanks analogy because you, you helped um, myself and Bernard through that actually i think we were burning the oil at one point and wondering why we felt terrible yeah physically yeah. <laughs> mentally and emotionally and we realized oh we're spending a lot of time on you know focusing on one area of life and everything else is kind of failing because of that yeah so you really helped us through that yeah that's which good I think, <laughs> which I think is awesome so now what i want to talk a little bit about business 
what do you see are the biggest keys to success as a business person? Is it, and I know it's a broad question, but mm. personally, I always tell people, you know, you got to learn to sell because if you don't get the money in, it doesn't matter how good your product is. Yep. So, that's my ethos. Okay. Um, and other people talk about other things. Mm. What are your, if, if I were to ask you, what were your priorities? What would you say? That's a good question, um, which, uh, like I think, I'm not sure it was always like this, but these days for me, it, it's actually realizing that, that business is about people. We often talk about sectors maybe being business to business or business to consumer or business to government, but actually to me, all business is people to people Yeah, and it's regardless of what you're selling. And so I think if you go into any uh, business product and service and think about um, what that means for the people that are involved, that actually can just change your perspective, moving away from the, the business task at hand to actually realizing that you're two people engaging in a conversation, you've got things going on at work but outside of work, but you're also coming to a, a, a business negotiation or agreement where you, you both want things out of that. And if you can take the time to understand each other and create that win-win situation, um, then I think that can hold you in good stead. It's, and, uh, and is that something that you can learn, do you think? And is that something you learned like intentionally or is it something you picked up from experience or is it something that you're just born with? Um, I think that's something I learned because I definitely wasn't always like that. And I'd have to say that by having this bivocational role has certainly made me yeah. more people aware than I perhaps would have been otherwise. But I, I've certainly had um, situations where I've gone into a business meeting, um, looking at presenting a proposal to a client and they've sat down and they've gone, oh, I've just had a really rough morning or not feeling so well at the moment. And if you're just thinking about the business task, it's very easy to mm. just go, oh, I'm sorry about that. Now let's talk about the proposal. But if you actually are intentional about going, well, okay, you know, you want to talk about that for a bit or, or what's going on? Um, I've literally had business meetings where people for 30 or 40 minutes will delve into a, a situation that's going on for them. But what you're doing is, I'm mean, not doing it for this reason, I'm actually doing it out of a place of genuine care, but what you find happens is there's a, a different level of relationship that's built and, and it's that people-to-people -people factor so that then when you come to talk about the business, there is a sense of, gee, you know, you care beyond than just doing this deal, yeah. which in, in a strange way then means that there's a level of trust that's built, which I think actually is, is, is good in business. So I don't, I don't really mind mixing that, that type of conversation together. So I think as well when it comes to people, I have this little uh, – um, actually, I read out of a book, but the, um, it's called the three C's approach, which is um, character, competence – and chemistry, yeah, um, and I kind of yeah I apply that whether it's someone I'm going to business with or even these days if it's a client that we're going to work with, um, and I'm always just checking that and thinking about that from a people point of view because at the end of the day, business being all about people means that if you don't um, get on with those people well, um, maybe they're not the right people to be working with. So the three C's: the character is um, I, you know I want to work with people who um, have integrity that I can trust. That I know when there's a problem, they're gonna they're gonna raise that and talk about that and be honest about that. Um, the competency is working with people. Uh, we're dealing with people that are good at what they do. Um, and then the third thing is chemistry. And the first two you can actually work on and you can improve most of the time. I think chemistry is that idea of do you enjoy each other's company? So even if I'm in a client meeting trying to win work, if I actually don't enjoy that person's company, um, I'm not necessarily wanting to do work with them because that'll come back to bite you at some point. Life's too short to 
I don't know, work with people you don't <laughs> enjoy hanging out with. Like. Um, yeah, it's sometimes hard in early stage business. You need to take what you can. But um, I'm always thinking about that when I'm in meetings with people for the first yeah. time. Um, and so, again, I'd, for me, it just reiterates that that people kind of thing. So. I love that one because you, you introduced that to us and I, I never actually thought about it. Even though it sounds simple, I mm. never thought about it. And, and in hindsight, thinking back to all these opportunities that I've taken up in the mm. past 10 years, yeah. I've... I've only like there's so many that have failed and the reason is because they've those opportunities have satisfied one or two out of the three C's. Yeah. And I think back to, to every one of those opportunities and I think, wow, only a couple of them have satisfied all three. Yeah. So if like and I try now to, to incorporate that line of thinking, but I, but sometimes I forget and mm. I don't do that and then I get excited about this opportunity and it really satisfies one C or two. But that's yeah. not good enough. Yeah, that's right. It's such a good model. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And I think as well, it's easy to think about that relative to staff you're employing or business partners or if you're taking investment investors. But I do think it does apply to clients as well. I mean, not, not all money is good yeah. money. You can take jobs um, that look like they're attractive and they're going to pay you well. But if those things aren't lined up, they'll actually cost you more down the track. So In terms of stress, brand, you know, brand reputation, yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about about the startup scene because that's everyone's so interested in that mm. and you've got so much experience there like you actually built your own startup that actually that made money mm. so that's already you know <laughs> something that 99 percent of people don't do and not only that you sold it for you know a good figure so and and then now you actually judge startups mm. in your you know in innovation bay what are the biggest reasons that startups fail in your eyes and any stories as well behind that yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, there's lot, lots of lots of reasons. I guess looking at. Um, I mean, I guess to give some stats and context here, we've looked at since we started Go Capital. I've looked at about 300 startup investment opportunities, pretty much out of Perth, um, or with some Perth context. It's huge, um, and that's through you know various programs and and people approaching us and things. So we've definitely seen uh, a lot of what's happening in the startup space. I think. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think they, they fail is they're building this product and they're getting excited about that and they're perhaps thinking about we need to get investors and all this activity can take place without realising that you genuinely need to focus on what the customer wants. Um, and there's some really good models around. I think if you're in the startup space, you'll know the Lean Business Canvas, which is trying to direct you towards validating what the customer wants. But at the end of the day, for me, a business is about making money. And you need to know that whatever value you're creating, a customer is prepared to pay for that. And every time we look at models um, of future valuations, there's so many assumptions in that. But the day you've got one customer that's prepared to pay $1 for your widget, all of a sudden the model can come to life because those assumptions are validated. And, And so I think a lot of people spend a lot of time building brand, building product, um, to the detriment of spending time with customers and really understanding what they want. And ultimately, when I'm looking at things from an investment perspective, the real um, qualifying criteria of that is that you've got some level of, of traction. People are following you or um, ultimately you've, you've got a paying customer because that proves that people are prepared to pay for the value that you've created. Mm-hmm. So I think um, earlier on thinking about how you can focus on that, and, and again, there's lots of great, there's the lean startup, there's the minimum viable product, there's lots of techniques that help you drive that out, but people do miss yeah. that sometimes. And is it because I love talking about this because I don't, 
I love understanding the human psychology behind it. Is it, is it because we as human beings just get romantic about the idea of mm. the, the actual product in itself or do, do we get romantic about the raising funds buzzword? What, what is it? Yeah, well, there's a few aspects there. I mean, definitely at the moment, there's a lot of people stepping in to start that entrepreneurial journey. And I actually think if you're, if you're remotely wired that way, to have a crack at one thing at least once in your life is a good thing to do. Um, there's so much personal learning and personal journey that comes out of that regardless of the success of the outcome. Um, and, I, and I do think there's that sense of people seeing massive exits, um, particularly in the US, massive companies that are built and technologies become more easier than ever to get a product to market quickly. So people kind of look at it and go, well, I can, I can do that and it's easy. And it, it's actually not. There's so many <laughs> challenges, you know, that, that come away. I think, you know, there's all sorts of stats around of only one in 10 businesses succeed or something like that. But, um, yeah, so maybe there's that sense, that romantic journey of being an entrepreneur and a master of your own destiny yeah. is, is taken. I also, I do think there's an unhealthy focus on, on raising money and, and people don't realize what it takes to actually um, get to a point where you're um, suitable for an investor, um, that you've got the right plans, the right momentum in place. But also they can, because um, a lot of the entrepreneurial programs will talk about gearing up to go and raise money. Um, and you can often spend a lot of time having investor conversations to the detriment of building customer revenue and, and building right. out the, and improving the business. Um, and so, I mean, there's really interesting stories because we, we see a lot of people come and ask, you know, for, for seed capital. And I've literally had um, many people who will come and say, I've got this amazing idea. It's going to be a billion dollar company. Um, and we'd like you to invest $500,000. And one of the simple questions I ask is, well, what have you invested so far yourself? And um, a lot of the time mm. they say, well, you know, we've put this much time in and we've got this far and we've sacrificed some salary. But my view on that is that you've, that's just part of playing the game. You've got to do that. You've got to put that in. If you've managed to actually put some physical dollars in, then that's a lot more meaningful. And yet there's so many times people will come um, having not done that and effectively, and I'm saying, well, if you've got this billion dollar idea that you think so good, but you're not prepared to put something on the line, yeah. why on earth am I going to uh, be doing that? And there's this weird expectation that you can come <laughs> along, have a great pitch deck and all of a sudden someone's going to write you a check and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So, and Charlie said it in the in one of the previous episodes as well, it's easy to buy things, hard to, um, hard to sell things. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's one thing to raise money, but then you've got to make money. Yeah. And do you see that often as well? Like how even if a business owner is successful at raising money, mm. they, they don't know how to actually get the cash flow in and that becomes a problem? Yeah. Well, cash flow, I mean, probably coming back to one of your earlier questions, why startups fail, I think cash flow is, is one of the, the reasons. And there's two aspects to that. One is the cash flow of the business and obviously emitting expenses, but there's also the cash flow um, of, of the, the personal cash flow of the founders. Like if you've, if you've got, um, if you've run out of money to pay for your general living costs and you're putting pressure on the business to do that, you often shorten the time frame that you've got for the business to succeed. And something that's a great idea and a great opportunity might need two years to, to, to kind of brew and, and take off. And yet you've only given yourself six months runway on cash flow at home. Um, and you have to close this idea around, um, down because of that. So I definitely think, um, thinking about how you're going to solve your personal cash flow. Um, through the, the early years is important and that's why we might come back to this but that's why I like the, the bootstrapping method to fund the business early on. Yeah. I mean I guess in terms of returning capital absolutely there people don't realize that if you're a startup with very little um, track record and you raise money 
this this is not philanthropy. This is people wanting a return. And I can go and find myself a 2 or 3% return in the banks. I can probably find myself a 10% return on the stock market. And if I'm prepared to be a little bit risky in that market, I might even find a 15 plus percent return. So if I'm going to invest in a very early stage business, in, in my mind, I'm looking for the, the 20, 30, 40, 50% plus return. Like I'm, I'm taking a punt here and, and I think business owners forget that when you take capital, you, you've got to be able to demonstrate how that's going to be returned at that kind of level. So we typically, for our investments, we're looking for a four to five times return over a generally a three to four year period. Keep in mind, we're investing a bit later stage, but, but that's the kind of numbers. It's, I mean, it's high risk at the end of the day, but with yeah. that needs to come high return. So yeah, totally agree. Um, so, you know, I've talked about what, what business, what startups don't do correctly what what do the good ones do correctly what are what are things that you look for in a successful startup um i mean i think i mean coming back to our story which is kind of one place to start and not that we got everything right but one thing i think when i look back that we did very well was um we it was perseverance every time i mean i was in business with um two other guys and we'd actually worked together for i think seven or eight years prior to that and so when um when there was challenges it was great having multiple heads trying to solve that but we we literally didn't give up um every challenge we had we found a way through and there's all sorts of ways we navigated that and and i look back now and go gee at any point there was opportunities to say we, we've had enough and packed it in um so i think perseverance and that competitive edge is, is really important um part part um grit yeah the grit yeah, yeah the hustle yeah, we yeah. often use the word the it's hustle. time to hustle. Hustle. hustle yeah, yeah. um the other thing actually with the green sense story that um, I look back on is, is something you can't control and that's just timing. Um, I mean, I met a business the other day that's a startup that's trying to do what we did um, over the last kind of 10 years and, you know, we've been, I mean, green sense mm. is obviously still in that business, but, um, too late. you know, maybe, maybe they're too late and, and I look at when the business sold for us, it was just a a really good alignment of timing between lots of different parties that worked and mm. I don't think there's anything we could have done to strategize around that it was it was a, it was a timing thing yeah i mean i guess when we're looking at startups look we've got when we get into due diligence we've got 100 plus points that we're looking at in detail but at a first pass um there's probably a couple of things that stand out that are, that are worth mentioning so the first is the team um and that comes back to the three c's that we mentioned so we want to see the competency the character and the chemistry with the team that's that's really important um we're looking for some level of traction so when I say traction, ideally, because we're investing a little bit later stage, there needs to be some revenue. Um, and we actually wouldn't invest typically unless a business has got to a million dollars revenue a year. Um, and so for us, that means we know that they've got over some of the startup hurdles and there's a, there's a, a market mm. for what they're doing and we can apply growth capital to that. But even if you're not at a revenue stage, we would still look for some level of traction that shows there's, there's people interested. I might just point out there that traction on an unpaid consumer product isn't a few thousand um, Facebook followers. We're, we're looking for, you know, millions at that point if there's, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. to know you're going to be able to monetize what you're doing. But um, so traction is really important. And uh, the other thing is what we call defensibility. So if you, if you build a market, we want to know that you can defend um, against that market as you, as you grow. And so, People, you know, defensibility, they don't always have an easy answer to that and they'll often focus on things like, um, well, we've got a patent, which is important, but um, 
you know, often in the early days, if you've got a patent and someone copies your idea, you're not going to be able to ha- fund um, chasing after them. People yeah. often say brand, but, you know, really brand doesn't matter until you're much larger. Um, and they, they might often say we're first to market, but again, for us, sometimes we're a bit nervous about that because first to market can often spend a lot of time educating the market um, as opposed to winning the market. And so you look at things like Uber, they yeah, weren't the yeah. first to market. Um, so sometimes it's the second and third. So defensibility, you do need to think out of the box a bit and heard some great anecdotes of, of how people have done that. Um, mm. Like Apple is a great story where at the time when they launched the iPod, Sony was the largest um, personal music device in the market and never should have lost that market share. But what Apple did that was very smart, obviously there was the whole iTunes thing, but outside of that at a hardware level, because they'd worked out how to put MP3s on a very small disc, they went and bought up the world's supply of that, that hard drive. So by the time they launched the iPod and Sony cottoned on, they already had a year head start and, and they won the game, which is pretty amazing. And um, wow. so defensibility sometimes has got to be a bit of a out-of-the-box thinking. And the final thing from us as an investor perspective, I guess, here when we're looking at startups is how we might add value as well. So we don't just want to put money into something. We want to think about how can we take our experience and our networks and um, kind of add yeah. value to the story as well. So we need to know that the, the founders are open to that, that situation. So it's like a good fit both ways, not just, you know, yeah. not just all about them. Yeah. That's great. So do you, well, what, what is the, if you're allowed to say the name uh, and if you're not allowed to say the name, that, that's fine. But what's the biggest startup success story that you've been part of? Um, well it's probably a few few stories to share so one that I was part of that is just came out of completely left field um, going back when I was working at PricewaterhouseCoopers this is back in the dot com era Um, this is publicised so I can mention it but the the company I worked for um, actually was a couple of university lecturers um, that had an idea this is back when you're bringing product catalogues online for the first time Obviously, now we take that for granted, but that was the innovation and what they've done is created an online marketplace and a lot of their IP sat around the ability to automate international shipping, which, again, we take for granted right now. You order something from Amazon, you know it's going to arrive. You don't think about how it gets delivered, but back then that needed to be built and automated. And so there's a couple of university lecturers who had come up with this idea and we were building the product for them. Um, Anyway, when they got to launch the business um, the university found out they'd been building this thing at night time and decided they wanted to try and sue them for the IP rights. Wow. And so they took them to court. They actually, this is in Victoria, they actually lost the case. And so the company then countersued um, the university and said, we lost our commercialization opportunity because we were having to deal with you in court. And they won that case. And wow. my understanding is that the payout was over $20 million. Um, so these university lecturers, <laughs> by having a startup idea and then countersued their former employer, made yeah. their money through that process. So again, that's the whole timing. You know how things are going to go. That's that's now wow. case law in Victoria, I believe. So that's, I'm not sure that's successful, but from a making money point of view, it's, <laughs> it certainly was. But um, but in terms of success, there's look, I think a few things to mention. I mean, Green Sense, um, you know, Green Sense wasn't a hundred million dollar exit. It wasn't a massive exit, but the fact that we were able to have uh, three founders that worked together, come up with an idea, build a product, commercialize that product, attract private equity investments, 
um, build the business nationally, get to a stage of profitability, and then eventually sell that company, which happened pretty much over a seven to eight year period. Um, there's not really many stories in Perth um, that I think kind of had that journey. So um, obviously that yeah, that's been highly successful for us and, and really, for me, given me a great foundation to do what I do now, which is, which is awesome. Yeah, and you made a good point. Like, it's not always about that $100 million, $40 million sale. Yeah, I, I think, um, <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, people talk about unicorns and I want to be passed a part of a $100 million business. I mean, look, for the average punter, I think if, if yeah. you've got a, you know, whatever the number is, a few million dollars drop into your world, you can pay off a mortgage and do a lot. have an investment that can kind of take care of you. I, I think just, just building, you know, if you focus on not the exit, but building good value in your business, the right exit will come. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if you're not too greedy and, and smart with what you do with the money, that, that can, you know, obviously make a significant difference in your, your world. Um, look, right now we, we are in the companies we're investing in, I, I would say, yeah, obviously we're hoping there'll be successful stories, but health engines are a pretty um, mm. common one that people are aware of. We've been fortunate enough to uh, get involved in two of the rounds with Health Engine. And uh, again, this is publicized, the most recent round um, where Sequoia Capital came on and gave the company a, a post-money valuation over $100 million. Um, for us, relative to our first round, was a, a massive uplift and um, you know they're, they're well and truly delivering on that, so I think that's going to be a pretty successful Perth story. And, and I love their story because, and it goes back to what we we're saying before about hustle and mm. and you know it's not all glamorous. Like I think everyone looks at them now and they're like, "Wow, amazing company! It's mm. so glamorous." And when you talk to the founders and you listen to the first couple of years of their story, like it was yeah. pure hustle. Yeah. And how Marcus is, you know, knocking on doors and asking dentists and. Absolutely. GPs, hey, do you want to use this piece of software for free? Yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> Test right. it out and tell me what you think. Well, I think a great story from a couple of developers in his lounge room. I think they might might have moved into your offices after that. Yeah, and yeah they did. For now a they're while. sort of 150 plus people in, uh, oh, you know, on Murray Street, and it's a really exciting story. And I, yeah. um, you know, so that that has been successful. Again, it's not an overnight story, but I, I think they're well and truly away now. Yeah. Um, the other one for us that we've done is Isatana. Uh, again, people are getting more familiar with that story and going, "Wow, that's a you know, that's a great quick story." But actually, Isatana has been around for um, seven or eight plus years. But what I love is that that was uh, research at a Curtin University that was then commercialised with Curtin and a few guys. And um, Matt McFarlane and UR Capital got involved early on, which is great. And um, when they were doing their first um, really growth capital round, we got the opportunity to get involved uh, with that and. Um, and that, at the time, that business again was 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 profitable and had global clients. Uh, so you know we're um, pretty optimistic that the growth capital is really going to help them get to that next level and, and push on. But yeah, there, there's some great examples of companies in Perth that are they're doing well. I, I think that it's still early days. I, I think we need many more of those kind of stories to really build the sector well. But that's that's what we're committed to, and mm. um, definitely um, there are going to be some good stories over the next few years out of those. Do you have any? interesting slash funny shark tank stories with innovation bay um oh well through through the startup um stories there's some fun i mean they're not always innovation bay but um oh look one i think i alluded to before where we we have people ask us for for money and they've not put any money in themselves there was some um kind of more middle-aged 
what was previous finance and mortgage brokers that had come up with a technology product idea. They hadn't built the product yet. Apparently, they just sold their <laughs> business and they'd come out of the finance industry and they were wanting us to invest in their product and yet they wouldn't put a cent in. And so when you ask that question and say, how much money are you putting in? They're like, nothing. And I'm like, well, hang on. So you're finance guys, mortgage guys. You haven't, uh, you've just sold your business apparently, so you've got some cash and yet you're not going to put your money in to this billion dollar idea that you've got, but you want me to. That's always kind of interesting seeing people squirm around when you ask <laughs> those questions, which I, I kind of, uh, you know, I partly enjoy. <laughs> you <laughs> love seeing nice, them squirm. Yeah, that's, that's definitely Shark Tank style. <laughs> um, actually, Steve Baxter has been involved in Innovation Bay in Sydney right. for many years as well, so he's. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, I think. Um, yeah, there's a couple of times where people have kind of kicked off their pitch at Innovation Bay and they've only got seven minutes and they get distracted with a story talking about <laughs> why they got into the business and six minutes in, I'm like, we you know, need to start talking Time's about ticking. The, the business. The, the one that's probably the funniest that, uh, well, not funniest, but um, I can reference relative to what we um, look for is the whole team and the, the, the founder. I remember there was a, a business we were looking at investing in and um, the yeah, founder was a great guy, had amazing skills, but we just didn't think he was going to be the guy to grow the business um, as much as it needed to and thought he'd be great in a CTO role. Um, and so we thought we'd call that out early and said, look, if we invest, we're going to look to bring in a CEO. He, um, his email back to me said, no, I'll always, I'm like Elon Musk. I can be the CTO and the CEO. Um, <laughs> I remember asking him, you know, have you got any weaknesses? And he sort of said no. And and so it's unfortunate because it's a really good business, but that type of thing we can't work with. And um, yeah. and uh, so, you know. Too risky. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, a little bit of a different tone here, and I hope you don't mind me asking, but you mm. give you give a lot of money away, mm. right? And and you've told me, um, you've told me how much before and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Why, how, how, how do you do that? What's your principle behind it? Um, a few things. So, um, at a at a very personal level, my wife and I we've been married twenty years, but have not been able to have children. So we've taken the view that there is no point us accumulating wealth um, to have at the end of our life. So we we try to li- live well. We want to give while we live. So in an ideal scenario, I'd love to. In my dying day, give away my last penny and know that everything we had was was given away. There, there wow. doesn't seem to be much point to build generational wealth for us, which is just circumstantial. Um, part of what drives us is I came across, um, well, part of it is my Christian faith context, and I believe that we're meant to to give. That that certainly drives things from a spiritual perspective. But I um, I came across a stat which says that if you are on Centrelink payments, or what we used to call the dole in Australia, um, that puts you in the top about 16% of the world's wealthiest people. And um, hmm. if you're actually on the average wage in Australia, which is about $80,000, that puts you in the top 0.3% of the world's wealthiest people. Now, we don't feel like that when we live here, and obviously it's all context and relative, and I understand that, but I, I found that pretty shocking. And I've spent a lot of time traveling to India and other third world countries and I'd look at that and go, who, who are you and I that we got to grow up and, and live and work in a place like this mm. versus the child that gets born into a slum in Africa or India? And so for me, that's pretty compelling to go, I don't think that wealth is all about my own self-satisfaction. Um, I've got to make a contribution 
um, to, to the world in that way and, and think about how we can give back. And sometimes for us that's very random, but we also try to do that in a pretty structured way, which is partly where Meridian fits in. We don't always get this right, but we, um, we generally try to live where a third of what we earn we um, live off, a third, the other third we invest, um, and the other third we give away which is kind of roughly how we, we're trying to live, wow. um, which you know, isn't like that every month, but that's the kind of principle yeah. that we're working towards. So. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And look, if people want to get in touch with you, is it through the Go Capital website or what's the best What's the best way? Uh, yeah, that's that's fine. Derek at gocap.com.au. Happy to chat about any of those things. So. Yeah, it's been fun. So thanks, Derek. And uh, yeah, hope everyone enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh.